Hope you all are doing well this morning. And um, it was interesting when I came in. The children were um, were learning the catechism on baptism. So if you're a parent, you're going to have a whole lot today to talk about with your kids because we're about to talk about baptism and um, and uh, its relationship to circumcision. Just remember that we are doing a, a Bible interpretation class, uh, particularly focused on how do you interpret the old in relationship to the new. And, and reading the Bible backwards and forwards, there's all kinds of cliches, uh, the, the idea of reading it like a novel even, that, that there is a redemptive story, and, and the things that we take out of that story pick up as you go through the story, where there's greater clarity as to the meaning of things in the old in relationship to the new, and I think you'll find that to be true here when we talk about baptism, because um, honestly, so much of some of the difficulties regarding baptism uh, are related to not interpreting it in light of the Old Testament, Uh, and that's a classic, classic mistake. It all goes all the way back to the first century, what we've been preaching through in First Timothy, where these ministers, uh, probably of a, of a type that led to a later controversy called the Marcionite Controversy, and, and they were not interpreting the apostolic teaching in light of the Old Testament, and that's what leads to heresy right there. And so uh, we're going to do that. But before we do, um, we have an opportunity now to uh, discuss among yourselves Here are two questions that I'd like to give you about five minutes or so, maybe a little more, um, and just interact with you briefly about it. And I would encourage you as you do this, don't try to play political correctness here, you know, or spiritual correctness, if you will. Really try to ask the question, you know, give yourself permission. It's okay. We want a church that really is is comfortable with with getting, sitting back in the balcony or getting back on our seat and say, hold it now. Do I really believe this? And here are some questions that are going to want you to, to be able to do that. So I want to give you that freedom to really ponder a little bit and not just recite some Sunday school answer. Not that those are bad, but uh, the ponder. So open it up for conversation. You're often done. So what were some of your thoughts? Um, first question, of course, uh, uh, what must I do to be saved? Um, and the real question I'm asking here is, would you speak about baptism if they were, say, not already baptized? Um, would that even come up? What were y'all's thoughts? Should it come up? Uh, is that something related to being saved or not? Um, you can ask the question a thousand ways. What were your, your initial engagements? And it's a pretty big question here. I think yes, but not right off the bat. Okay, right, not off the bat. So you can be saved, but not baptized. Okay. Go for it. My initial thought was just that the, the first thing I would recommend would be joining or, or participating in a church. And part of that would, especially when it comes to joining, would be being baptized. Okay. So I could read that, hear that answer two ways. One way would be to say join a church and then get baptized. But joining a church is the important thing to be a Christian. Well, I think or you could say... You're saying join a church, but you can't join. But the way you join a church is through baptism. Join a church, and you can be so that you can see, taste, and see what all this is about, including baptism. Okay, so would you need to join the church, be baptized, to join the church in your mind, or is there joining without baptism in your mind? Well, there's joining as officially joining versus attending. Okay, attending I, I, I meant uh, well. Initially attending. Okay, you mean go to a church. In the life, and then eventually. I think maybe that's what Patty's talking about. I'm not sure, though. Yeah, okay. Yes. 
other thoughts about that? I mean, the bigger question is, is, is baptism essential? I mean, is, 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 if someone said, what must I do to be saved? Would you say, be baptized? What would you do? Yeah, go ahead. Anybody? Well, I would tell them that there's nothing that they can do to be saved. But I would tell them that that's an act, a work of God. It's salvation. And a good gospel-believing, teaching church uh, will be able to explain that uh, to them. And so if you never get baptized, you can still be saved, because they're really bad. Right. Well, that that would come up. Uh, it's a do, It's a good, dutiful thing to do. As, I'm, and I'm playing a little bit with you. I you know, know you are. So, well, I'm trying. I'm trying to figure out what you said. So, uh, so let's try to parse this out. Is baptism uh, a, a witness? Something we do as a be, an obedience to Christ, as a witness to what God has done in my life? Yes. So our table oh. talked about the idea of baptism as an outward sign of an inward change. Oh. But not like it's it's not essential to being saved per se. Like okay. look at the thief on the cross. Yeah. Yeah. And he yeah. wasn't baptized, but Jesus okay. said, "Today you'll be with me in paradise." Yeah. All right. That's a good example. Okay. Is that an extraordinary situation or is that an ordinary situation is the question. Okay, we're getting some good stuff. Thank you. Um, this is interesting. It's really fun. We're going to have a lot of fun here in less than 20, 30 minutes. I don't know. Um, okay, now you're a parent uh, and you're talking to one of your parent friends and they could be Christian. They could not be Christian. Let me just, when I say skeptical, obviously it's the context of the question. They're a little bit skeptical about this issue of you know, this infant baptism thing. Um, you know, no, what would you say? What were, what, do you think they should? Are they right? I mean, again, I want to acknowledge, by the way, let me just say this right over By the way, if you're visiting, welcome. I forgot to do that. It's great to have you. Um, I mean that. We're just kind of jumping right into this thing, right? Um, and secondly, I want you to know that I know that we have a lot of people that come to this church uh, that this is a big issue, and they don't have to get this resolved necessarily to, to be here. Um, but uh, it's one that eventually, if you have children, it's going to be a big issue. Um, and so... Uh, do we do this or not? So let's let's open it up. Uh, what did you say, a skeptical friend? Uh, no, you don't have to. One answer, or yeah, you really should. And if so, why isn't that just dead religion, or whatever else you might see in the skeptical question? Anybody thoughts? Yeah. I would just like before we baptize our children, you um, brought it back to the Old Testament and the entrance right into the community was circumcision on the eighth day and. That in the New Testament, that baptism replaces circumcision as the entrance yeah, to the community, and and also just how the New Testament opens things up more. Why would we be restricting it more? That stuck, did it? Yeah, I like that. So. Yeah, I remember when I first heard that, and I thought, "Wow, that is interesting." Yeah, that's good. Thank you, Heather. Very well said. So she pretty much gave the what we'll call the redemptive historical argument, um, which is partly what we're going to review here in a minute. Anybody else? Should you baptize your children? Yeah. Um, so as we are, when we're saved, we're adopted into um, the family of God. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of like family means not just a one person being adopted, but also like in future generations. Mm-hmm. It's a joining of family lines. Right. And so in such a sense, like a baptism of children is to not just identify that. Um, Christ is saving us individually, but it's also... So that opens... Good. So there's a sociology to, to becoming a Christian 
and not just an individuality. And that relates to now to children. Do they belong or not to this community? And how would we demonstrate that? That's an argument, right? You'd say, yeah, they should be belonging in this community. They're not pagans. They're in. That's one argument. Um, but one of the things that I think is particularly interesting already is it's emerging if you're listening. Do we believe that baptism affects anything? I'm going to say I'm saying this most lay way I know, or or affects anything, or has any kind of power to accomplish anything. Is it a means of life giving grace? Is it is it a channel? Is it something that actually results in a change in a real sense? I want you to keep that question in your head. Because too often we begin to talk about these sort of things, whether should you is baptism an essential element of the gospel? And should a child be baptized? We often think about it in all kinds of categories that are true, you know, say who should be a member of a church or not. Children are members. How do we show that? Okay, that's a good argument. But you notice we've kind of dodged the big question. Is it something you do in order to, to have something in my life? That's what both of these questions are asking you to think about deeply. Now, with that in mind, um, we're going to do a redemptive historical. As we said, it's going to teach you how to interpret the Bible, but at the same time, uh, you're going to learn a little bit about baptism. Now, I apologize. These are kind of small, but I hope that you can see it. So let me just back us up a little bit. Um, again, I want us to ask the question, is the gospel, and so everything I'm going to argue about, everything we're doing, listen for the answer to those two questions. It's all through this. Okay? So the first question, is the gospel the same in the Old New Testament? I'm going to have to go pretty quickly here. I'm sorry, but, but we're going to roll. So you can be reading while I talk if you want. And at first, I think you have to say, well, yes. Um, you see Genesis 17. You see Genesis 22. These are both passages that are quoted in the New Testament as, as being consistently what they still are. Absolutely, there is nothing in the New Testament that would argue, hey, we've got a new religion here. <laughs> that is at the most, probably the most essential, and we often take that for granted. We get so used to it, right? But if, if you were to say, Paul, what, what's the starting point for you in this Christian faith? Where, where does it all begin? If you go to Romans, the very beginning, he says, it, it has, it's two things, two profound things that happened to me. One is... Everything the law and the prophets led me to believe is, is, is my salvation. So yes, whatever Paul would say, this is not a new religion. This is the very same religion. And the gospel is the very same gospel. But then what he's going to say is, but I didn't know it come in its fullest sense until I met with the resurrected Christ. It's not until I encountered the resurrected Christ and I realized... He is the Messiah that is the ultimate of what all these other foreshadowings and prophecies and laws, everything about it had Paul, a good redemptive historical theologian, you could say, just primed for the Messiah. And everything the Messiah was going to accomplish that was to fulfill the promises of God to, to the people, his church. So I want you to start thinking in your head, not about... You know, Old Testament, New Testament, or or um, or say Israel versus the Church. 
We just want to call it, there's the Old Covenant context of the Church of Jesus Christ, and there's the New Covenant context for the Church of Jesus Christ. The Old Covenant began with Adam, and, it, and the New Covenant ends with, with Christ coming again, right? And everything in between is the Church of Jesus Christ, if you're a covenant people. Um, and you see this right here, uh, in the way in which Paul uh, Peter here is preaching in Acts, and then in Galatians, how Paul speaks of it there. So, so without reading all that, I uh, hope you've had a chance to kind of look at it. But, here I go again, equivocating. No, I mean, something's changing here. It's true, circumcision in the Old Testament. Uh, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you, and your offspring after you. That is, those generations. He's now quoting Abraham. Or Abraham's, uh, he's talking to Abraham, I'm sorry. Uh, every male among you shall be circumcised. Exodus 4, as a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Why? I didn't put the whole thing there for the sake of time, because he, he hadn't been circumcised. What? You mean that circumcision was an essential element of being a covenant member of God and his people? And this is Moses he's trying to put to death. Pretty big stuff. We're going to come back to that passage in a minute. Circumcision in the New Testament. Doesn't sound quite so essential anymore. And quite the contrary, it's not. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That sounds like evangelical to me. That's what I would say to somebody. All that stuff don't matter. Circumcision, baptism, it don't matter. Right? Hebrews, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he spoke to us in his son. Is that contrary to? Or is that in continuity with? All right? Let's move on. The redemptive historical meaning of circumcision and baptism. So there's some questions. Uh, I've said yes and no, which means I'm getting you more confused as we go. And now we're going to start weeding through this stuff very briefly. And again, it's a short presentation. So if you were to read Genesis 3.24, and I'm getting at what is is circumcision, first of all. And what I'm going to show you is how circumcision means and accomplishes what baptism will be said to mean and accomplish. Which will beg the question, how do we execute it? Do we execute it the same or do it differently? Watch this. So in Genesis, just if you were to build a theology, a biblical theology of, of circumcision baptism, you would start with Genesis and this sword imagery, which is first depicted in Genesis 3.24. Any future return to God's dwelling place and the tree of, the, of, of life must involve then a passage back through this sword. Right? That's how it all begins. What is that sword? It's representing God's judgment. From the very beginning, the gospel starts with you having, with after Adam and Eve were excommunicated from the temple of God in Eden. They were outside of the church, if you will. Now, very quickly, they get back into the church because in Genesis 3, there's this incredible promise to them. And that promise is sacramentally executed by means of, of, of a sacrificed animal in which they are clothed with this blood-gained righteousness. By the spilling of blood, by the judgment that came upon this animal, they are then clothed 
Whereas they are no longer outwardly naked, but spiritually more important, they're no longer spiritually naked. And how do we know that Adam was saved by grace through faith and the promise of the seed that was going to be given to the woman that would crush the serpent's head? How do we know he made faith with that and was restored back through repentance and faith? Because at the very next moment, he then names Eve the mother of life. That is, through your seed, I believe, will come ultimately the Messiah who is going to to take upon himself what this, now I'm going very quickly here obviously, what this blood sacrifice accomplishes that somehow through going through a great judgment ordeal, we are going to be saved on the other side of that judgment ordeal. Now that sets up a storyline that you will hear over and over and over again and, and, and how it informs what we mean by circumcision. So in Genesis 9, the Genesis flood is referred to as a wreath of the flesh, a cutting of the flesh. The word covenant is wreath, derived from the word to cut, to take a sword to you. To enter into that covenant, if you remember in Abraham, when it was given to him in 17, or 15, I'm sorry, Genesis 15, when it was given to Abraham, do you remember how it was happening? God took a heifer, cut it in half, slaughtered it, its blood, and then we saw this picture of a substitute God in this lamp passing through this judgment of the cut heifer and coming out on the other side, which is the basis of the covenant of grace. It all has to do with cutting. A judgment ordeal foreshadowed all the way back in Genesis chapter uh, 2 or 3. Whichever it is, I can't remember. (laughs) And then Isaiah. What you would see in this passage speaks of God's redemption in terms of passing through waters. What? Waters with God unto salvation. Now this is interesting because now water is beginning to replace in anticipation of the Messianic age the, the image of a cut, of cutting. Now, when you go to baptism... Um, ordeal. What we find is the same thing in 2 Peter 3 and then 1 Peter 3. Um, both speak of passing through judgment by water, and it's referencing the Genesis flood in one of those passages, and it references the Exodus in another one of those passages. And it's linking now baptism to what? You tell me. It's that word I keep using, a judgment ordeal. It's, it's water, but water now is not drinking water. Water is not, oh, that tastes feels so good. Water is a sign of judgment. Okay? And so this is really important because circumcision now means in its day exactly what the New Testament writers tell you baptism means in our day. The representation signifying that we are saved by passing through judgment. A judgment that we know wants to bring us back to that passing through judgment by means of a a substitute presence of something that passes through that judgment for us. As in the substitute lamb or the heifer or the animal that was slain to cover Adam and Eve. However you put it, judgment got satisfied. 
Now how does this change the conversation? What are we saying when we get baptized from a signatory point of view? We're saying there's not anybody on this earth that doesn't face judgment. And there's only one way to salvation, not around it, not around judgment, through it. You've got to go through it. Now, the question is, how are you going to go through it? Are you going to go through it like the Old Covenant Church did? By grace, through faith, and the, and the God who spoke through His prophet and through His priest and king, that, that messianic figure, say, of Abraham or Moses or even David in some respects? Or are we going to be out there doing it on our own merits? Is this a covenant that's transacted through a covenant head on our behalf? Or is this a covenant or promise that's transacted without a covenant head on my behalf? That's the question. And so what you have is this passage. Then you read 1 Corinthians 10 again. In a similar fashion, the exodus through the Red Sea is spoken of by Paul as a baptism in water. Paul writes, Our fathers all passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses. There's that covenant head. In the Old Covenant context, foreshadowing Christ, we know. But there, Moses, acting as Christ, prefigured, they are baptized, we would say, in Christ. Under the Old Covenant, they would say, in Moses. As Moses, vaguely they knew it, because even in the law it says there's going to be one greater than Moses who would have the power not just to signify, but to actually transact the business. He's going to write, he's going to circumcise your heart. Now what just happened there? Colossians. Now this is where I I certainly would like for us to, to read it. Does somebody have a Bible real quick? If someone could read Colossians 2, verse 11 through 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So we've already seen, already before we come to the New Testament, how baptism in water, and there was a sprinkling, by the way, of that water in the temple, that there were two signs of judgment ordeal. Now what's interesting is is very clearly Paul makes an argument that what was believed about circumcision is now being transacted by baptism. And that baptism has something to do with the promise that was made even to Moses himself, but through Isaiah especially, that there would come a day when there would be a power... There would be an efficacy. There would become a means of grace wherein this circumcision of the heart would be transacted and now that is particularly being picked up with this, this sign of water and passing through that water and a new birth that was expected to come when you pass through it. So the emphasis, though, the same gets shifted just a little bit. If the cutting ceremony is the ceremony of of, a great and horrifying judgment, the water picks that judgment theme up and moves it now towards a more efficacious focus of this new birth out of the new waters. Sound familiar? What's going to happen in the Gospels? 
In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now this is important. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And he goes, who warned you when the Pharisees and Sadducees came? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit and keeping with repentance. Very carefully, what you see is a baptism. Listen very carefully. This is like the crux of the argument here. A baptism that is clearly identified with the judgment ordeal that's been associated with it throughout the Old Testament. The Red Sea, the you know, etc. Very clearly, he's saying, what is your purpose for coming? What was he doing? He was preparing the way for the real baptism. How? What do you, can he do? What could John do? All he could do was bring them to confess their sins, to repent, same context there, to repent or confess your sins that you might be ready to receive this grace of being of passing through the judgment unscathed, undestroyed on the other side of the shores, if it will, of the Red Sea into a new life. So look what he's going to say. He says, I baptize you with water. For, that is for repentance. But he who comes after me is mightier than I. I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat in his barn, for the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. There's no other way to interpret this. There's one that's coming, and it's not just a sign anymore. There's a kind of baptism that's coming through this Christ who is going to actually, efficaciously, vivifyingly, whatever word you want to put on this, make something change. Everything that baptism foreshadowed is going to change through this baptism of Christ. And so the ultimate judgment ordeal that the cutting rite, circumcision, and judgment waters of the flood and rather sea foreshadowed is now come to the ministry of Christ. And then in Matthew, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized in him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? Now we look at that as some little act of humility. And there is some of that maybe, sure. Well, it's there. But you're missing the point if that's all you came in. If you went and subjectifies this, like we so often do, and ripped it out of this glorious context, oh, we need to be self-effacing or something. No, John is a theologian. He is a Old Covenant ultimate. He is he's the least or the last of the Old Covenant theologian uh, prophets. And he's preaching here. He is saying everything that I'm doing as an Old Covenant prophet and this baptism of repentance is no longer uh, necessary. And why? Because now the true, full baptism has come in Jesus Christ. And so he says, what are you talking about? I can't baptize you because you have nothing to repent of. You are absolutely righteous. You have no need of repentance. And then listen to this answer. Let it be so. Now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What was Jesus talking about? He is righteous. Why then is he being baptized, which is a baptism of confession of sin? Whose sin 
was he bringing to the baptismal font of, of, of John? Any guess? Hours. There you go. I love how you see this our language. John, Jesus, working together. Nope, you got to do this, John. Because you've you got to understand, I'm my purpose. And he says it in many ways in the, in the New Testament. One is to say to Peter, who says, no, I'm not going to let you be slain. He says, get behind me, Satan. My purpose was to go suffer the judgment of God at the cross. He's saying the same thing right here. Yes, sir, John, you're going to baptize me, bud. Because nothing's stopping me from going to that cross. Nothing's stopping me from bringing the sins of the people to the judgment waters of God. Judgment waters are going to be ultimately fulfilled in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, what happens? Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up to him. Something really big just happened here. A.K.A. And now the Spirit of God descended like a dove, coming to the rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven saying, My beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. This is ridiculous. i got five minutes. Um, but just leave it to say, there is packed in that statement basically the whole story of the Old Testament. From creation at Genesis 1 and the hovering of the dove over the waters to the new creation in Exodus, the hovering spirit over the waters, new life, rebirth. We're talking about, in the language of our confession, re, you know, efficacious calling or regeneration power. New life. That is the kind of life that comes not by the water of natural birth, but now by the Holy Spirit water of the new birth in Christ. And so now what have we learned? You were saved by the blood of Christ foreshadowed in the circumcision rite of the Old Covenant. And here we have this, this passage fulfilled that I read earlier. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. What's going on there? She just went, he was, she was going to kill him, the God was, until he got back, uh, circumcised. Why? Because that circumcision is related to the Passover. That very language that you see in that passage. It says, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood in the basin. None of you shall go outside the door. She's literally using a metaphor of Passover that says, you have to be circumcised, son, because there is no salvation except by passing through the judgment of, of the blood of the Lamb. And circumcision was a sign of that, but evidently it was more. To get on God's good side, you've got to be circumcised. The cutting or bereave ceremony of circumcision symbolized a great judgment ordeal, wherein by substitutionary blood of their sins they would be passed over. In chapter 9, it's interesting, establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters. Is that not unbelievable what I just read? Water baptism in the noetic flood is here in chapter 9 of Genesis likened to the bereath, the cutting of circumcision. There was never a time, really, when you did not have these two things going together. Salvation through the blood and baptism, 
notice the very language. Colossians 1, having been made peace through the blood of his cross, right? This is right before he didn't start talking about circumcision, now baptism. And then in Jeremiah 6, it makes it even clearer. I've already read the other passage in Colossians 2. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, he's talking about something else here. He's not talking about just a sign, is he? You know, something signifying. He's actually saying, this changed you. This baptism. You are now reborn. You are regenerated. New life. And I'm going to, we're going to go back and qualify that in a minute. If you're just about to die over there, just hold your horses. We're going to get there. But that is, that's a pretty blatant statement. So now we move to the seal aspect. The efficacy of both circumcision and baptism as a means of grace. Both pointed to a deeper spiritual circumcision of the hearts, not hearth, of which baptism does also. Old Testament, we see it. Circumcised, therefore, the foreskins of your heart. Whatever else you thought of circumcision, it wasn't just an outward thing. It envisioned an inward thing by the work of the Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy 3, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your offspring. Does that sound familiar, that language, and the hearts of your offspring? It's going to be quoted in the baptism uh, uh, in Acts chapter 2. Deuteronomy Philippians, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. What is Paul saying there? We, the church of Jesus Christ, the new covenant, are the circumcision. But how? Who worship by the Spirit of God. That is, by the power of the Holy Spirit that converts us from the inside out. Colossians, we've read... Romans, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Something got transacted there. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in a newness of life. There it is again. Just, just step back, guys. Just play this game. Just imagine you've never read the Bible before in your life. You've never been around Christianity. Can you do that if you have been around? And imagine just reading this passage, you know, like a good, innocent person would read it in a plain sense of its meaning. Without all the controversies behind you where you've got to start figuring out all ways to, to really make it say what it doesn't say. What does it say? And the Greek is as clear as the English, so don't worry. It's in a Greek thing. <laughs> Titus 3.5, he saved us. Not because of any works of righteousness in us that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. What water is he talking about? Now, he clearly doesn't see baptism as a work, but as an act of, of, of faith. This isn't work in a sac- what we call sacerdotalism, as in it's kind of magic. If, if you just get yourself up there and get baptized, you're saved. He's speaking of a meaning of, of, of baptism in a, what we call sacramental way. Not just an ordinance, but a sacramental way. First Peter, and baptism, which all this stuff he prefigured, as in the Old Testament, new, you know, flood and everything we talked about, now saves you. Why was Paul so comfortable saying that? This baptism now saves you. Why will you say something like that? What what is baptism that he's not qualifying? He will qualify here, though. Watch what he says. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. Baptism is also a washing. 
is one way to translate it. Not by you doing something to yourself, to your point there, Bill. So you're right. Let's play with it, but you're right. But by faith, faith that is acted out in baptism. And so we're going to say that there is no salvation apart from grace through faith alone. Baptism becomes a means through which we act out that faith. We express that faith. We participate in that faith. Because of what it means. Mark, the one who believes and is baptized will be saved. Really? Why did you have to put and baptize? The one who believes, period, right? Well, guys, it's just not what your scripture says. It just doesn't say that. It says, and baptism. And you're thinking, oh, that was an accident. Or maybe that was just a little bit of a, you know. So, well, Acts 2. Peter preaches this incredible sermon on, on Jesus Christ, on the coming of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Someone comes to him. They've been quick. They're cut to the spirit, as he, and it says. They're quick. And he goes, what must I do to be saved? Oh, come on, guys. I'm, I'm playing with you. You know that, right? I mean, you guys, like these guys out there. Come on, guys. You've got to be kidding me. No, man. No one's saved by works of the law. You don't have to be baptized. Peter didn't understand that, I guess. Repent. That's repentant faith. Have faith. And be baptized. Every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ. And there is a result. <laughs> Not the result first. There is a result so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You mean the Holy Spirit comes by means of being baptized? Interesting. Acts 22, 16, and he's now, why do you delay? Get up, be baptized, and have your sins washed away. Whatever our theology of baptism, guys, I've made a vow, and I know you have too, that I'm just going to let the Scripture... I've got to go deeper with the Scripture if it seems to say something that I think is contrary to what the Gospel says. It's saying something that seems contrary to what the Gospel seems to say the way I grew up with the Gospel. And i got to deal with it. And there's just so much of those passages like that. So here's how this is going to be the shortcut. Right now I knew we need some help from the church. The historical 2,000 year church. So what is a sacrament exactly? We're told it's a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits, to confirm our interest in him, as also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world, and solemnly to engage them to the service of God and Christ according. Now, I heard a lot of your answers say that to you over here somewhere. I think it was you or something. You kind of said something just like that. Like, yeah, we're, these children belong to the church. It's a sign of their belonging to the church. And that's good. That's right. But notice what else he says. There is, it's not just a sign now, there is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified whence it comes to pass that the names and the effects of the one, what's signified, are attributed to the other. Whoa, that's pretty heavy stuff. Notice what he says about baptism now. As a holy sign, what is it that signified? It's of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in a newness of life. They took that right out of Scripture. We've seen the newness of life language now three or four times. So what does baptism signify? It signifies this benefit by grace through faith. Now, right there we could stop. It's just a sign. Our confession don't stop. Neither does the church for 2,000 years. 
Look what it'll say next. As a seal? What exactly effect does it have? Notice this spiritual relation between the things signified in the sign. Remember that? Well, notice this. In baptism, in grafting into Christ, all that language I just said is what the benefits are that it's supposed to signify. And then it goes on to say, how what? By the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Spirit. If I were to ask you, what does baptism accomplish? I'm going to say, it confers grace into your life. Just let that sink in for a minute. And I'm in orthodoxy right here. It lets it sink in. Now, necessarily, Pastor? I mean, is it just magic? You mean, if, as long as you get baptized, then I'll be saved? Next line. Yet, here's the qualification. Grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that by no person can be regenerated or saved without it, or that all who are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. Now, some of you are saying, wow, I thought my whole gospel was about to blow up here. (laughs) And it isn't. It's all predicated upon divine election and grace. But ordinarily, ordinarily, Baptism is not just a sign, it's a means of grace. It's a means of getting what is signified into my life. By virtue of what it does, both directly in the mystery of sacramental union, we're told, and indirectly by virtue of it entering into a church where all the means of grace are in that church, like word, sacrament, pastoral care, oversight, shepherding, all that. And all of those things are means of grace, right? But the bottom line is, baptism saves with the qualification. Not necessarily. Not necessarily immediately. So what would I say as an argument for, if you can give me two more minutes, I know I'm a little late. The argument for infant baptism, this will be online, by the way, hopefully by Monday. I would say it this way. Continuity of the New Covenant Church and Old Covenant Church. I'd I'd start there. That the Old Covenant Church is the New Covenant Church in different form. Many redemptive era covenants, Adam, Genesis 3, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David... But they're different forms that convey the same gospel. Circumcision in this covenant context meant and was executed the same way that baptism means and is executed in this present covenant context. Executed as an entrance or initiating rite, not a renewal rite like Passover. Initiated as an entrance or initiating rite to both adult converts and their children, that is, household baptisms in the Old Testament, like we see in the New Covenant and the New Testament. And the logic that's inferred here is that it's a means of grace. You give it in order to be saved. You don't give it because you're already saved. That's what I mean by an initiating rite. Now, if someone asks me, why should I baptize your children? I'm going to say, because you want them to be saved. And they're going to say, but why would I do that? Well, because baptism, the mystery of it all, is united to the Spirit of Christ where there is a real and genuine relationship of what it's promising to the power that gives it to you through that baptism and all the life that comes with that. But not necessarily, not necessarily merely, that's why we wait and we divide baptism the Lord's Supper so that over here there's a confirmation of a true and adult confession of faith. That's very important. 
So to make it really plain, um, you see household convert, uh, a circumcision, of course, all through using the word household language. You go to the New Testament, you see it all over again. You can go to these passages later. Same thing. And it begs the question, you say, well, I don't know how old those households were. Really, do you not know that most households have babies somewhere in the world? I mean, sure, it's a household, and it includes babies. You know, I'm playing the adventure Circumcision on the old cup. So here's a way to illustrate it. And I think you'll like this. When a person believed in the God of Abraham and trusted him in, in the old covenant, what would happen? That is, he became a Christian. He was bad. He was circumcised, right? He had to be circumcised. Believers, circumcision, I'll call it. Because he wasn't a member of the church. And that's how you join the church, and that's how you fully participate in the presence of God unto salvation. What happened to the whole household when that covenant head of that household was joined or engrafted into the church or the whole custom? Well, they were circumcised. Note the meaning of circumcision of a man symbolically identified as progeny. I don't want to be graphic here, but some of you are thinking, oh, why weren't women? Well, because the idea was it's the progeny of the covenant heads, this federal headship idea. So in effect, women were in that circumcision included as that was representing the progeny and the manner and the place in which circumcision took place. What was the outward event that represented the clean heart in the Old Testament? Circumcision. What was the outward sign that marked a person's entrance to the community or believers in the Old Testament? Circumcision. Now ask the question of the New Covenant. When a person believed in the God of Abraham and trusted Him in the New Testament as fulfilled in Christ, what happened? He or she was baptized. What happens to the whole household of that person? They're baptized over and over again in Acts. What was that word's event that represented the clean heart in the Old Testament? Or New Testament, I'm sorry. Baptism. What was the outward sign that marked a person's entrance in the community of believers in the Old New Testament? That's supposed to be baptism. Okay, I'm going to start there. How does a person become a Christian? Um, I'm going to say every time. Do you want to become a Christian? Repent and faith, those are two of the same. Confess your sins, believe in Jesus Christ, and be baptized. If you haven't already, and join the gospel living church through that baptism. That's how you become a Christian. You mean I'm not a Christian? I'm going to say you're not a total Christian, at the very least. you got the head, but you don't have the temple, the body. There's still something missing. Go ask Augustus. He didn't get saved in the garden. Go back and read his confessions again. He got saved when he got baptized on Easter. And he'll tell you that's when the weight of the sin dropped off. God bless you. Have a good day.